This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to The Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known guests about their lives, their careers and negotiating those difficult moments along the way. I'm Giles Perry Phillips and with me in his den of iniquity. Oh God, Sneaky's going to call it that. It needs a new name. Yeah. It needs a new uh, name. It's Jim Daly. Hello, it's a very cold, I mean, it's the same very cold. very cold, very cold, I'm freezing cold, very I cannot feel my toes right now because uh, we're doing an evening record, but my word, this is a good episode this week. Oh, I cannot wait to share it. Oh, mate, we, it's got everything for you, isn't it? Because it's got football, yeah, football anecdotes. Yeah. Um, what else? That's all I need. Football. <laughs> <laughs> that is everything to me. That is literally everything. That's all I need. Yeah. Um, we will we will get it's Martin O'Neill, who's an absolute, absolute icon of British football. Um, and we'll get onto it very soon. Uh there's some oh belting stuff in here. Yeah. Um anyway, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I'm doing okay, actually. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Apart from the cold weather, uh, I'm doing good. I've just, okay. Random little anecdote, and then we'll get on with with Martin. Yeah. But it's a it's a it's a cold weather anecdote. I've discovered through sheer laziness and lack of preparation. So recently, I've been starting a new job. Where I've had to get up early, drive, and then get back a bit late. And mm. and early in the evening, late night, the car gets frosted over on the windscreen. Oh, of course. Yeah. I don't have a scraper. Or a de-icer because I keep leaving them in the porch and forgetting to put them in my car. So I think it was like one morning, or no, one evening the other day, I realised on the way back, oh, what's, what can I use? Like, looking at my car, what have I got? And I realised that I had an old Crystal Palace season ticket. And of course, season tickets, when they used to be little plastic cards, like a like a credit card kind of thing. So I'll give that a go. My word, it glides through the ice like ever actually nice. as they gliding through a defence. <laughs> it is perfect absolutely i'd say better than an ice scraper better than de-icer it mm. is just it changed my life so now i've got my little season ticket from three or four years ago in my car ready to de-ice so that is a very niche i'll be honest football related ice story but some people use um cds don't they 
CD cases and CDs. I can imagine that. Yeah, I can so imagine. So if you've got that. your old Supernaturals album, you can just get it out and ruin I, it. Uh, <laughs> I went on Life Goals with Theo Delaney, which is a great podcast. Oh, yeah. Like, I've been on up. as well. Yes, I have. Certainly and have. Uh, I mentioned Supernaturals as one of the songs. And didn't, have uh, someone... their, didn't have any of their music. <laughs> I think I'd send him the send Theo the link afterwards. Um, someone tweeted me saying, "I love the Supernatural." Oh. So glad he mentioned it, and I love that album. So there's two of us out there. I'm trying to remember what songs I chose. It's a great podcast. It's sort of football. Your, your favorite goals and your favorite music. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Yeah, we should have asked Martin his favorite music, and we could have done it. Ah, oh, we could have done a little O to it. Anyway, actually, Martin should go on that podcast because he's obviously doing. Martin is O'Neill, football legend, player on the European Cup, twice player twice and then manager six um i mean unbelievably successful through the 90s probably the most successful behind alex ferguson really when you think about what he did with many clubs at varying levels um has a book out and it's called on days like these martin did uh uh rib us at the end of the interview for not reading it we haven't been sent it <laughs> we haven't been sent but it. we haven't been sent it um but i'm sure it's at, i mean the guy's 50 50 years in the game mm. i um so even just the snippet of stories he told us on this pod, uh, I'm sure the book is full of more. But he was just, I mean, I always thought he was an, a nice, a sort of uh, effervescent sort of character, which mm. I did put to him during the podcast, because my main memory of him during the 90s is up and down on the touchline at Filbert Street when Leicester manager, he used to do a little jump up in the air with sort of two arms in the air and legs. And I think he was, an FA Cup now, game am I right he was thinking... a jumpy manager on the yeah, touchline. And... And and a sweatshirt with the collar out of the top of the sweatshirt, mm, kind of. Which magic. is very Brian Clough. Very Brian Clough, yeah. And tracky bottoms and football boots on the touchline. Yes, yeah. It's, he wasn't a suit wearing manager, was he? No, no. But he was. Uh, he was a staple. If you were to watch football in the nineties, as I did, absolute staple of uh, of football there. And to get to sit down with him and talk to him about his playing career and his managerial career and uh, and what drove him on, you know, it was. It was you know how much I love football, but it's just fascinating to talk to someone that successful about mm. about their life. And he was an absolute joy to talk to. Yeah, well, I mean, I love football as well. And uh, yeah, really interesting. Like he even told us about kind of formations that he put in place when he sort of started at Wickham and then moving along and how he only sort of tweaked them as he went and kind of getting found out by Porto in um, Champions League or UEFA Cup I can't remember which one it was but um, made him reevaluate his formation so like, little things like that were really interesting it's always interesting to hear about those kind of technical things but then obviously like yeah the highs and lows of the game which there are always lots and you know I asked him about you know being a manager and how is that different from being a player with those highs and lows and obviously there's a lot of pressure on managers a lot of pressure from, from all sides you know you've got supporters players and people running the club so it's um and it all kind of falls at the the, the manager's door, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I was. It, it's a. As I said to him, I think it's a lonely existence actually mm. as a manager. But it's interesting hearing about that and how the family is affected. And but we could have we could have chatted to him for hours. Yeah. I mean, I was slightly conscious that his dinner was getting cold. So I <laughs> bless him. Didn't want to, you know, take up too much time. But um, he's. Yeah, I can imagine you could sit in his company for a good few hours and talk about all sorts of things uh, on football. So we really appreciate Martin coming on. We're going to get into the podcast in a minute. Before we do that, Giles, we're going to, I think, shout out some 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 very uh, passionate people on Twitter who have enjoyed a recent episode. Well, yeah, we've... Uh, so Bonnie Langford, who we had on last week, is... I can't, I can't believe how, like, it's got all these fan groups that um, 
yeah. the follower, and they've been very kindly s- supporting the uh, the episode and posting stuff out for us on Instagram and um, and Twitter. So big shout out to the um, the Bonnie Langford fan groups who've been supporting yeah. the podcast because uh, yeah, I mean it was, a, it was a fantastic chat with Bonnie, and um, she's obviously very well loved uh, out in, and she's got this big community of people that are very loyal and and love what she does. Can't imagine they're going to listen to this episode. I I don't know if they're going to come back. <laughs> I think it might, I can't imagine there's much overlap with Bonnie Langford fans and Martin O'Neill fans. But who knows? If they are, thank you for coming back, and exactly. we really appreciate know, the support. You? you never know. Maybe they just enjoyed the vibe of the pod. Uh, but thank you for your support. Yes, yeah, so we hope the Bonnie Langford fans aren't going to just listen to the one episode. I hope they go back through the back catalogue and then maybe would... start other kind of fan groups. You know, maybe a Louis Fru one or a John Monson yeah. one or a, a Martin O'Neill but... fan group. Exactly. I, I hope they're listening. I'd love it. Anyway, all support is appreciated. So if you've if you've tweeted about the pod or told a friend or written it in a smoke signal, who, however you support the pod, we really appreciate it. Uh, and you can get in contact on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook uh, with the handle at Blank Pod. You can indeed. Shall we get on with Martin O'Neill? I think we should. We've teased it. Oh, such a great episode. This is the one and only Martin O'Neill on the Blank Podcast. Well, Martin, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Um, we're really thrilled to have you on and, and really excited to talk to you. Jim and I, I, I will say straight off the bat, we're we're both Crystal Palace supporters. Um, uh-huh. So I, I hope that won't um, stand us in, in, in a bad stead with you. Um, but I was wanting to ask you to start with, we often start at the beginning of people's sort of journeys. And I, I, I wanted to ask you about your kind of first memories of football. What what were the things that really enticed you into this love of football? I, I right, okay. Since um, since I am much older than you two, even your ages combined, <laughs> I can start off by telling you that um, I um, my earliest memories were uh, watching uh, Real Madrid playing in the European Cup final. Two years earlier than that, there, nineteen fifty eight, I had seen uh, I'd seen. Um, uh, Brazil play Sweden in a final. Uh, our wow. neighbor, our neighbor, two down from our house, um, not only owned a television but actually ran a television shop. And he invited the my brothers and my father to come and watch the uh, the final. So we pull over the curtains. I remember the curtains being pulled over because the sun was shining in at the time for the World Cup final, and young Pelly scoring the goal. And to this day, sorry. Obviously, that was a big memory, but really, at the end of it, it was Eintracht Frankfurt and Real Madrid in the 1960 European Cup final. Again, we still didn't have a TV of our own, watching it in the same house again and seeing it and watching watching an all-white team in black and white scoring all these goals with Puskas mm. and De Stefano playing in the team. Now, strangely enough, what, uh, what age am I? I'm about seven or eight years of age at the time. Then my brother... My older brother was at university, uh, came back about, uh, must have been about a year later, came back from a break, whether it was the summertime or whether it was Halloween, and said he had read Puskas's autobiography and said that Puskas could keep a tennis ball up when he was a young fellow. He practiced with a tennis ball all the time and could keep a tennis ball up on his uh, feet without it touching the ground 
like Kibiopis, and they say about 200 times. And I thought to myself, if I can keep this ball up 200 times with my foot, I'll be as good as Puskas. Well, two things happened. One in four months from it dropping off my foot at five, I could keep it up 200 times. Secondly, wow. and secondly, and unfortunately, the second one was the major thing. I did not become as good as Pussy. <laughs> right. So, so that myth was destroyed quite early, although it kept me going. And it's, it's what I wanted to be. And of course, in um, uh, then the, I was at a boarding school, 1967, uh, the Celtic side go on and win the European Cup. Uh, before that, there had been a massive Sunderland fan, still am, but Sunderland fanatic because um, uh, Charlie Hurley had played for them. Then a lad called John Crosson, who was from Derry City, played for them, and Martin Harvey. Anyway, I'm going back over names that you will not remember, but they were terrific. And then, um, then of course, the great George Best appearing in the scene, 19, 1968, scoring uh, a goal in the European Cup final, all that type of stuff. So it was essentially... If I'd say to you that Puskas was was probably the first person that I that uh, and black black and white, so the opposition are and to me they're in black because Real Madrid are so angelic in white that I must become a Real Madrid fan and then and I think Don Revy eventually made Leeds United turn into an all white team because he was um, he had been impressed with uh, and who wouldn't be impressed mm. with Real Madrid so anyway all of those things. And then uh, England, England winning the World Cup in '66, all that type of stuff. And did I think that six years on, I would actually might play a game against Bobby Moore? Yeah, it's amazing. That is incredible. That's a fantastic, fantastic story. I'm sure that Puskas was a, was an inspiration for a lot of young kids at that time, given his ability. Um, slightly different from my first Palace game, which was Palace against Notch County uh, in 1992. <laughs> not, as glamorous. So, not quite as glamorous. Marco Gabbiadini scored, uh, if you can believe right. it. Um, so was football uh, a big part of growing up in the family? Was everyone into football? I, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I was. We. I, I was in a, uh, a GAA, which is the Gaelic Athletic Association background, and my older brothers had played for um, for the county. You know, it's like uh, maybe somebody playing at cricket for Warwickshire or something. I guess here they had played for County Derry, and. Um, my father had helped found the the Gaelic club, so Gaelic was a big big part of my growing up, and I loved playing it. I genuinely loved playing it. And um, but uh, but if you ask me, maybe since uh, since Puska's days, just to uh, for me, my ambition was to play in England. And then, of course, when match of the day started to come around, and what was it, nineteen sixty two or something? I guess sixty two, sixty three. Um, and when I, I mean, maybe be home for holidays at Christmas time from my boarding school that I was at, for me to watch match of the day was well, this is it. I'm I, I'm off and running now. Of course, I'm going to be, I'm going to end up playing for uh, for Liverpool or Leeds United. I've, I I do have a GAA story. Can I can I tell it a, a quick anecdote? If that's absolutely, okay. please do. My brother Sebastian has uh, married an Irish lady, Colleen, this year and uh she's absolutely lovely and went to the wedding and oh, i was best man and at the wedding her three brothers are big hurling boys so yep. they had a lot of hurling as kids and uh they got the sticks out they got the uh the hurleys and the splitters i believe uh -huh. is what they're called the, the stick and the ball 
And they were smashing the balls around on this grid, looking so confident. And then they're like, right, give it to the English lads. Let's see how you can do. So, of course, we're all just like missing the ball, you know, like absolutely horrendous. And then after a few minutes, or maybe about half an hour, started to get into rhythm of it, actually. And actually, if you concentrate and you're throwing it up properly and you're holding it backwards to a golf club, it's all, you know, we're starting to get into it. So then Pordy, one of her brothers, says, uh, right, let's test your skills out. They got a goal and uh, let's see who can do crossbar challenge. And so right. they're all hitting it and like just missing the bar. And we're obviously shanking it left, right and center. And after about three or four goes, I throw it up and I just, you'll know what it's like in football. You just hit it cleanly and it feels yeah. effortlessly. Effortless. I couldn't believe it. And it went straight, ping, straight on the bar. And everyone's like, oh, and all the guests at the wedding are like, oh, my, who's this? Who's done that? And like, it's only the English, the English best man. <laughs> and so then Pordy is like obviously livid. And then he goes, okay, fair enough. Fair enough, Jim beginner's luck let's see if you can do it again uh, so i get the ball again so obviously by this point everyone's looking the pressure's yeah. on so i throw it up i go to hit it not as clean this time i sort of skim yeah. it and it does a bit of top spin i think that's not that's not gonna do it and it goes towards the bar dips at the last second ping off the bar again two in a row Cordy is absolutely <laughs> livid and it's probably the greatest moment of my entire life fantastic fantastic where was where was the wedding what kind of was the wedding in the wedding was in clock jordan so it was, uh, I don't know what the county was, but it was west. And the, the junction that you came off the motorway from was uh, um, Monegal. So it was um, Barack Obama Services. Was it? Is that right? Yeah. Which you'd think would be a really like illustrious American style services. They're not. This is Bob Standard. <laughs> <laughs> Little chef. Service station. But it, it was um, Clock oh, Jordan good. House, I think was the venue. Stunning venue. Honestly, really lovely brilliant. wedding. Lovely. Well done. Well done, you. Thank you <laughs> very much. So I'm now looking at like, are there any hurling teams in, in, in Buckinghamshire outside London? Can I join it? No, I'll, I'll be terrible. Join, absolutely. And no doubt at all about it. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so, yeah. So when, what was the first sort of, I guess, the first memories of playing football? First memories of playing football. Well, I, um, I went to a boarding school from 1963 to 1968 and uh, so that was uh, and we played Gaelic most of the time so mm. the only the only soccer football I would play would be on the quad the quadrangle you know where just after school where you throw maybe your your bags down and get on with it on with a bit of a game and it wasn't until I moved up to um to Belfast my family moved up in the year of 1968 and uh, I went then I finished uh, a level started doing a levels at another grammar school and uh, as a day boy, now I could come home, and uh, and some of the some of my um, lower sixth lads were also playing for um, for a, a youth team called Rosario, and uh, they asked me to join. And um, I, the only bit of boasting I'm going to go to do today, lads, is this: <laughs> the very, the very, after school at St Malachy's College. Uh, I wandered around the back after school because I'd heard that they were playing some football games. This was my second or third day at the college, and um, so uh, and uh, so they're picking the two teams, and uh, and I got picked last. I got picked last on the and the team because they didn't know. And then delightfully, the following day with the same games, and I was picked first. So um, so I <laughs> either either they. My my fellow players were remarkably bad, 
<laughs> or actually I was remarkably good. And I tend to think of these the latter that I was really remarkably good, but no way. So uh that's my final piece of boasting, right? So I, <laughs> I got, and I got um so essentially the the lads from Rosario uh put me into their team and we started to play some football games, so much so that uh, and all Belfast select team were chosen at the end of the season to play against the Dublin team. And they played this game in Belfast. I got chosen for the game. We won 7-3 remarkably. Ooh. And I scored three goals. And Distillery Football Club, um, were, uh, they, they had representation at the, at the, um, uh, at the, um, at the game. And then they, obviously whoever was there scouting for Distillery told the manager of Distillery and he came round to our house, and uh, and I end up joining Distillery. I owe an awful lot to the manager Jimmy McAlinden, who had actually played in England here, and had won a, a an FA Cup medal with Portsmouth way back as far as 1939. Was it 39 when Portsmouth mm-hmm. won? Anyway, long and the short of it is that he had shown great faith in me. I played a number of reserve games for Distillery and was hopeless, hopeless. But yet he put me straight into the first team, where I found it far easier than than in the reserves, remarkably. And I scored a couple of goals. We won the um, uh, a couple of months later. We won the Irish Cup. I scored twice against Distillery, and because of winning the cup, um, that led us into playing in Europe to play in the European Cup Winners' Cup, as it was called then. In those days, we played against Barcelona. I scored against Barcelona. Remarkably, I've only found out there about a year ago that the goalkeeper I scored against was Pepe Reña's father. You know? Oh, wow. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, Pepe Reña's father. Uh, somebody derogatively said it was Pepe Reña's great-grandfather, but that's <laughs> you know, just simply not true, lads. All right, okay. And uh, so, anyway, and on the strength of that goal, it got a little bit of traction in the, uh, in the not just the local media, but I suppose the national media, certainly in Ireland. And as a, a consequence of that, uh, Northern Ireland were playing in Belfast against Russia in an international game. And uh, in fact, it was the last game played because of the troubles for about four years. And um, and the, the the player manager of Northern Ireland happened to be also the player manager of uh, Hull City, who was Terry Neal, who ended up being manager of both Tottenham and Arsenal. Mm. And, uh, and instead of uh, some of the players at his disposal were... Um, were either called off the international game because of injury. And instead of calling up another player, English bass player, he called me in because I was now a student at Queen's University. And um, and he called me into the squad. I got the last 20 minutes of the game against Russia. He put me on. I never got a kick, but a following week I was signed by Nottingham Forest. So that's so... Um, and even though Nottingham Forest were on the decline at the time, it didn't matter to me, lads, because I'm now a professional footballer. So overnight, I went from being a student at Queen's playing part-time football for distillery to becoming a, a professional footballer. I thought, and I scored, I scored in my debut, I scored in my debut uh, against West Bromwich Albion. And uh, I followed it up a couple of weeks later at Old Trafford, scored against George Best, Bobby Charlton, and lads. Wow. I thought this is a really easy game. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I hit a bad spell. I think it lasted about four and a half years. And um, so, 
you're supposed to laugh a wee bit louder. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so the football that I thought was easy well, just wasn't as easy as I thought. It was a wee bit more difficult. And um, but nevertheless, it was uh, it was the start of my footballing time in England. That is, I mean, that is a whirlwind, isn't it? Time going, as you say, from being a student playing part time. Absolutely. Then... So within, I I think I made my. I came on as a sub against West Brom. We're talking about the old first division at this time, lad, which would be the Premier League. Mm. And I came on as a sub against uh, against West Bromwich Albion. And the remarkable thing about it, you two lads, would, you're too young, you might not remember a player called Asa Hartford. And Asa Hartford was um, a young lad at West Bromwich Albion and a young Scottish international player. And... He was being signed for £175,000, a lot of money, mm. to Leeds United, Don Revy. When Don Revy bought a player, you had, you had to take notice because yeah. uh, getting into that Leeds United team in the early 70s was uh, damn right impossible or downright impossible. And um, so he's signing Asa Hartford. As it turns out, Asa Hartford did a medical. You can check this up, lads. And, and he failed the medical because he had a wee bit of a hole in his heart. Right. And he had, and he was brought back to West Bromwich Albion, and this was West Bromwich. This was his first game for West Brom on my debut, and just shows you, you know, you talk about. So I score, I score after twelve minutes, only locally known as the goal I scored. But Asa Hartford was all the chat because he had come back from a hole in the heart, failing the medical at Leeds United. So there you are. So you talk about being overshadowed by a hole in the heart play, you know. <laughs> so. Aesa went on to have a really great career with Everton, Manchester City and a few teams like this year, but really fine footballer, Aesa Hartford. But this was him coming back. And then uh, in December of the same year, I, uh, I, as I say, I come on as a sub and score this goal uh, against uh, against uh, George Best, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law, all playing for, at Old Trafford. And I, I pick the ball up just in, inside my own half and race through. And Bobby Charlton stops chasing, would you believe? He just decided, oh, no, listen. And I smash this thing past Alex Stepney into the net. And uh, honestly, and I think, yes, listen, I'm in business now. I'll be at Manchester United the following week. <laughs> <laughs> so so there we are. So it, uh, I'm afraid it took... Um, it took someone like Brian Clough to arrive a few years later before or um, or um, things started to turn around for the football club. Well, um, yeah, the, yeah. The, well, let's talk about that because obviously big character, as everyone knows. What was it like as a player having someone like that coming into the club? Oh, well, massive, massive for us in the sense that we were second division with the championship mm. now, as it's called. But uh, we're in the second division at the time. Remember, he... Had been um, he had been manager of Derby County. They'd mm -hmm. won the league in 1972, um, and big big figure. Not just not just in the footballing scene, but obviously on um, uh, on every other scene. On the um, uh, I mean, for instance, he was um, he was a regular guest on Michael Parkinson, who would mm, have the yeah. big big show. So uh, Clough was well known, really well known, and a mimic called uh, Mike Yarwood used to take him off and uh, and exceptionally funny. So so Cluffy was a a major figure. Now he's at Derby County. Uh, Clough, Clough resigns every single week at Derby. You yeah. know he's um, yeah and one particular week the uh, the um, the chairman of the club Longson uh decides okay yeah all right that's fine I'll take it. 
then Clough can't believe that he is, even though he resigns every single week and tells him every single Monday, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Then suddenly when Longston decides, yeah, okay, all right, Brian, you can go. Brian obviously totally disappointed, but Longston decided that's it. So uh, Clough leaves. He goes to Leeds United after a a spell at, at Brighton, last 44 days there. So now... In 19 January of 1975, we're getting Brian Clough now. That is major for us because, one, Nottingham Forest and Derby are 25 miles apart, mm-hmm. don't like each other, and suddenly we're getting a next Derby county manager. But we're not just getting a next Derby county manager, we're getting Brian Clough. And for him to come to us in the second division, like this is fantastic news, really, really fantastic. So, so, I, I, so by, that, by that point, you're sort of like 23, I guess. So still quite a young man. But I, I, I'm interested in how, because you, you seem like a very bubbly, charismatic character. Dare I say it, sort of happy-go-lucky, take everything in your stride. With that meteoric rise you had, how yeah. did you take it when it was going well? Did you take it in your stride? And then you said there was only a few years where your form dropped off. What were you like when your form dropped off in those tougher moments that every footballer has? <clears throat> right. Okay. Number one, I put my glasses back on it. Jim, I can't, I cannot believe that you can speak to me for a number of minutes and totally misread my character. <laughs> totally misread it. You should get back to playing that hurling. All right. Okay. So honestly, I'm seriously. Colleen would love you, and Sebastian and Colleen would go. Honestly, take you back anytime. They wouldn't. Oh, they wouldn't. Right. Okay. I'm. Uh, do you know? Funny enough. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm. I would love to think that I'm a happy-go-lucky. No, no. Uh, I'm. I'm not. I could. I can be incredibly morose. And when I was left out of the team, which was more than one occasion, you know. In fact, relatively often, believe it or not. I ah, oh, heaven's sake. I would. I would have blamed everybody under the sun. You know, serious. In fact, lads, I actually did a diary for a couple of months in 1972. And it's so puerile, it's untrue. You know, honestly, um, I, I seriously, a, a four-year-old, I actually think a four-year-old must have written it, but I wasn't. I was actually, uh, you were close in age. I was 22 at the time. So I'm writing this thing, and I noticed there that is that um, it's essentially one of those must-do-better type things. Uh, January, January the 6th is something that gets here. Uh, left out of the team again. Manager doesn't know what he's doing. Why am I not on the side? I am better than Peter Cormack. I'm better than that. I, I, I don't know why Ian Story Moore is still playing in this side. Uh, honestly, it's pathetic, man. Absolutely pathetic. But um, so that gave me, when I read it not so long ago, maybe a couple <clears> of years ago, it gave me a sort of an insight into what I was thinking as, as, a, as, a, as a 22-year-old. But it was still my first year at, uh, at Nottingham Forest. So from that viewpoint, desperate to make it as a as a professional player for a start don't want to go back to Ireland and think listen you know um I know I've just failed here I wanted to, I wanted to become a I wanted to become a proper player and uh, and things and it was you know and sometimes you, you do you do actually I know just just um almost flail out in in, in directions and and blame everybody but yourself and uh and I I, it finally came to me one day where I would be making excuses. And sometimes my my parents had moved over to England 
And my father would maybe make an excuse for me in certain games. He'd come down to the city ground and watch the game. And i say, how did you do? What did you think that? And uh, he'd say, oh, listen, son, it wasn't your fault that they didn't pass to you. And it wasn't your fault that you tripped over it four or five times. And, <laughs> and, um, and maybe... Maybe you maybe should have tied your laces a wee bit better, but overall you you did all right, and it was everybody else's fault. And then one day, one day, and uh, another game. So he was obviously fed up telling me. So I um, I came back from this particular game at the city ground, and uh, and I asked my dad, "How did you do? We'd lost two 0 I think you might. You know what? It might even to be Crystal Palace where I come on as a sub. Crystal Palace that year. Um, just escaped relegation, by the way. Yeah. Two teams mm-hmm. are down. Huddersfield and ourselves went down this year. And then, and I said to my dad, how did I do in the game? What might not have been Crystal Palace because I, I might only get on for 10 minutes. But anyway, some game I started. And I said, how do you think I did that? He said, yeah, you were crap, son. And um, so, and that was uh, delightful to hear. Finally, he finally he said, no, no, you've got to do something about this. Son. You know, really, otherwise yeah. you will be you will be back in Ireland soon. So, um uh, it was a, you talk about the old proverbial learning curve. It was certainly that for me at the time, you know. But um, but strangely enough, I was actually doing all right at international level, uh, playing for the uh, playing for Northern Ireland in a few games. Nineteen seventy three, I make my um, I make my full debut at Coventry against Portugal, and um, so Eusebio's play. Wow. Have, have I, I haven't obviously told you this story and I'm going to bore you with it. Anyway. No, no, please tell us. So um, we're playing we're playing against Portugal because Northern Ireland cannot play their home games in Belfast because of the troubles. So we're playing Portugal. Now, Eusebio was probably no longer the player he was in 1966, but he's still a fine footballer, a fine physique of a man as well too. And I, I, it's one each, a draw, but I score the goal for us, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, naturally, towards the end of the game, there's players man-marking Eusebio only to get his shirt at the end of the game. And, of course, I think that Eusebio was bound to give it to me because, you know, he'll he'll know all about me. I've scored the goal at the other end. And, of course, I'm in cuckoo land because <laughs> Eusebio... Eusebio has no interest in taking a Northern Ireland shirt. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but one of our players, Brian Hamilton, stands beside him for the last 10 minutes of the game, about a foot and a half away from him. And when the game is over, has the shirt off Eusebio's back. And uh, with, you know, in in just, just, just in a second. So Eusebio has no alternative but to take Brian's Brian Hamilton's shirt and wrap it around his, his neck. So now he's coming off the field at Highfield Road, old Highfield Road in Coventry. And he's walking up the tunnel. Now he's got the Northern Ireland shirt over a big bare chest. And I decided I'm not I'm going to relieve him of his shorts. You know, I'm going to ask <laughs> <laughs> so and the shorts are beautiful, lads, because they have the um, right down the side of the shorts where I'm talking about. Right down the side, they have the um, they have the uh, red and green of Portugal right yeah, yeah. down. They're distinctive, and so I tap him in the back of the shoulder, and he looks around, and um, and uh, and I just point to his shorts. They have the shorts. He didn't know immediately, but then I kept pointing to the shorts, <laughs> and he took the shorts off, and now suddenly, by the time he gets into the um, the time he gets into his own dressing room at Highfield Road, he's almost completely naked, <laughs> but. Um, but I have those shorts, and I, I, 
obviously go and wash the shorts and they're my beachwear for the next three or four years, you know. So, <laughs> so absolutely. So Eusebio shorts are tucked nicely somewhere, you know, you know. So it's oh, good. God, imagine what they're worth now. That's that's superb. God almighty, <laughs> absolutely. Do you know what, lads? I, I'm not even sure that I, I, I'm sure I wore them to a standstill, you know. I, uh, the, <laughs> They should be somewhere. Though honestly, I'll come across them again. Make no mistake. You know. So you were you were you were confident, young man. Then you were clearly very confident. And I guess maybe that's half the secret of making it as a footballer in that world. I think you have. Yeah, I don't think you can be too. You don't be cocky. Whatever you do, this game is this game bites you so quickly. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to have some sort of confidence about yourself. You know, otherwise you're going to. uh, You are really going to. uh, fall short if the because there are plenty of t- times in the game where your confidence will definitely take a, a take a dip. And um, I use there's um, uh, in my time at Nottingham Forest, uh, there are two fantastic outfield players. There are a lot of great outfield players, but two that Ian Story Moore was a brilliant footballer way back. He went to Manchester United. His career cut short with injury. And John Robertson, my little Scottish, John Robertson was a, a really, really great player. But John, strange enough, for being a great player, sometimes needed uh, needed people to tell him how how good he was all the time. And Brian Clough, I think, realised that pretty quickly. And uh, he would always tell John, uh, "John, you're brilliant." Primarily because, primarily because John was brilliant, really was brilliant. And um, but. Uh, and I wish he had told me a wee bit more often. <laughs> <laughs> that was the point. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, all right. And um, so there we go. Uh, uh, two two seconds, lads. No worries, I, no worries. Yeah, yeah, get your my tea. tea might be coming. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, is it? Be, right, okay. No, no. This, the, these are the, these are two really decent lads. There's, there's only one thing wrong with them. They support Crystal Palace. <laughs> and, uh, Someone's uh, got to. They have a nice manager, nice team now. It's minute, and I know I haven't talked to them about last minute goal last night, which was brilliant. Yeah, but you know they're probably still drunk. Don't worry about. It. Yeah, see, it's my dear wife. She's not. Sorry. I should I, I should have finished. These lads should have wrapped up a long time ago. But anyway, so sorry. Okay. Anyway, and um, so uh, right, where were we? Oh, I have no well, idea. Well, we, we want, can we, I just say? Yeah, go on. Yes, I was there last night with for Elise's goal. What a goal! He's good. Herb. He's a really good footballer, him, isn't he? Is. he? Really nice footballer. Absolutely, yeah, a really beautiful. nice player. We are blessed at the moment with some very, very yeah, easy on the eye footballers. So absolutely right. Yeah, no doubt. Doing no well. We got right. a good manager as well. He's a yeah. good guy yeah. for the era. Crystal Palace, honestly, the team of the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, I know. How long did that last? <laughs> about three months. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. If that, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Some Vince Allaire and all those players. Oh, yeah. Vince. Yeah. yeah. So not. Nottingham Forest. Let, let's talk a bit more about Cluffy because obviously a very charismatic man. You you said that he was good at telling certain players they were good. But I mean that that sometimes can be quite surprising with Club because you never sort of always sort of see him as being a, an arm around the shoulder kind of manager. Was he was he like that? Uh, he uh, no he, he he knew he knew that John. Uh, but, but but John deserved the the, the accolades bestowed on him yeah, because John was doing it on the pitch, you know, and. Um, and I, I just, I just sometimes think that, uh, with myself, that uh, we had a, 
a bit of a difference of opinion on my ability where I used to, I thought I was brilliant and uh, and he wasn't so sure you know so uh, but um but essentially uh, uh, listen you talk about it seriously lads he brilliant brilliant manager knew the game inside out as always considered by people as a motivator and uh, and he, and he was certainly that but he um and he did not come down onto the pitch and coach every single day. In fact, he didn't do that at all. Mm. But he coached during the course of the games that stood the test of time, the closing down fullbacks of closing down wingers, stopping the ball from coming in for a start, first time I'd ever heard of it. Um, this whole idea of, of football, considering he was a, such a complicated character himself, he preached simplicity uh, about the game and... Uh, I used to say, if you overcomplicate this game, it's your own fault. Um, you know, it was a simple game. You get it. You give it to a red shirt. And then eventually you get it out to a red shirt who can do more with the ball than you can do. So, and um, and eventually it went out to John Robertson. Because <laughs> yeah. he could do more than most of us could do. And we had also other players like Tony Woodcock. Viv Anderson was the, definitely the best fullback in the country at the time, you know. And uh, so we had a lot of good players, I must admit. But Clough was the, he was, um, um, uh, for want of a better word, the catalyst that, that, uh, that, uh, that, you know, stirred everything. He was, uh, we wouldn't, let me put it this way. Would John Robertson, Viv Anderson, Tony Woodcock, uh, those players have been really good players. Would they have gone on as Tony went on to play for Cologne and Arsenal and teams like this here, John Robertson? Would they have been good players? Absolutely. Would we have won the European Cups without Brian Clough? Absolutely not. Mm. No. So, um, and at the time, are you? I guess at this point, you're in your sort of mid twenties, late twenties. Are you? Yeah. Are you thinking at the time? Are you getting inspired to be a manager by Cloughy? Are you thinking? No. 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 No, absolutely not. I never considered management at all. Never considered it. Even even in the in the last throws of my playing time, I never I never thought about it. It was a chance meeting uh, with um, Peter Taylor, Brian Clough's assistant. So Peter uh, <clears throat> Peter and I <clears throat> didn't get on that fantastically well. You'll soon find from this sort of podcast, lads, that I didn't really get on with too many people. You know? <laughs> So, uh, I just can't believe that. I can't believe that. <laughs> Extraordinary, you know. So, uh, uh, as Clough might have said, and I make this up myself, and he never said this to me, but I pretend he said it. They said that I was arrogant with nothing to be arrogant about, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and um, but overall, he um, uh, so what happened is that I finished playing, I'd, I'd uh, done an injury in. And you know, you were saying, Jim, your first ever game, you saw uh, Crystal Palace and Notts County. Yeah. Well, I was, who, who, was it you, Jim, or was it you? It was me, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah Jim, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, well, I played, my last team I played for was Notts County, which, uh, and um, I got injured at the time, and uh, and that, 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 that was it. So, um, and I'm living in Nottingham at the time. Peter Taylor and Brian Clough have fallen out badly and have not repaired their uh, relationship and in fact Peter ends up dying before they did do which is really sad because the two of them together were were phenomenal and um, so I ran into Peter uh, almost literally ran into him in a shop in Nottingham and I was trying to get out of the way but he saw me coming from a distance and I and um, and he comes he said hey 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 you Peter always spoke with his hands, you know, and he said, uh, he said, you disappoint me. 
And I said, well, again? And, uh, <laughs> and he said, you're disappointed. He said, I thought you would have gone into management, which was the first compliment he'd ever paid me, really, because it, and, 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 uh, and, you know, in a funny sort of manner. And he said, oh, you're the two best teachers and myself and Brian. He said, I thought you'd really gone into it. I thought you would have done it because I thought you had management material written about you. And um, and it made me start to think about it. And that was really probably the first time. It, so I went home, took it really serious and then started to apply uh, for jobs rather unsuccessfully, I must admit. But I started to apply for 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 jobs then that became available. So I genuinely this would be about. 19, 1986. So I really did start to think about it um, uh, more strongly than I'd ever done before. And it was really that chance meeting with Peter Taylor. Had I not have seen him, had I been able to have dodged him, I, I might never have done it, you know? I, I guess life, I guess football, but life in particular is all about chance meetings, isn't it? And it chance, is. It's, it's sliding doors. Being in the right, sliding doors, yeah. Absolutely. It's no, no question about that. Absolutely right. And uh, and eventually I, I I find myself managing at, at Wickham Wonders, and I I I had a great great time there, and primarily because the players, the players who were um, who were part time players, put heart and soul into every football match, and had they not done so, had they down tools, and I uh, and I had not managed well then. Who knows? I might never have had a chance at all because I have the, the, people say to me, oh, you started to manage down at a lower level and you could make all your mistakes there. I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. You started you started to make a lot of mistakes at lower level. You ne might never get another chance. If I was, for instance, I make this point. If I'm if I'm, uh, uh, let's say, chairman of let's say Sheffield United, for instance, you know, or something like this here and um, and. Uh, uh, somebody says uh, or they're looking for a new manager, and they said, "Oh, that that uh, fellow down at Wickham Wonders, um, uh, he'd be really good because he used to play football." It said, "Let's have a look at his record, and then find out you had lost the last eighteen games in the trot." <laughs> I don't think there's much of a chance of you getting that job. You know, <laughs> let's be fair about it. Yeah. So this idea, it's it's fraught with difficulty, and that's why I I have got enormous regard for those Wickham Wonders players, as you say, who put heart and soul into. It. You know, obviously, I I think I helped them along the way, but they certainly helped me. Yeah, I actually live quite. I live in Chesham in Buckinghamshire, which is not far from Wickham at all. You live 35. in Chesham, do you? Yeah, do you? I do. Honestly, yeah. yeah it's a, so, uh, and would you travel into Beaconsfield then at different stages? Do you? Do you climb up that hill at? Uh, <laughs> From uh, Amersham, you know, you I would tried, have to Yeah. Oh, yeah. I try to avoid hills, to be honest. That's one, <laughs> one rule. But, um, yeah, if you're driving, <laughs> driving to Sellers, driving to Sellers Park from Chesham is a bloody nightmare. Oh, of course. It would be easier than a helicopter. You know? <laughs> yeah. I should just be a Wickham fan. It'd be much yep. easier. <laughs> it is. Sellers must be there. It's definitely the hardest place to get to in um, in all of Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, there's no question is it uh i remember taking the drive when i was um uh i was managing the republic of ireland and then i would uh sometimes that crystal palace might have um be playing an opposition that might contain an irish player so go down to have a look at the game and uh seriously i get to is it is it white horse road or something like this yeah. here up there what was like and I, <laughs> What is it? Something I got there, and I have no idea. I might as well park the car there and walk the next fifteen miles. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
But I love it. I love, I seriously, Selhurst Park is a, a favourite because I love the atmosphere. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And it's yeah. good to see the, uh, listen, I know the run hadn't been great up until last night, but even so, it's uh, it's good to see it. But it's, um, as you both said, some really talented players playing in the team. Thank you. That's very kind of you. When no, you, really, really talented. Yeah. When you started management, did you, ha- obviously at Wickham and stuff, did you have a very... Early doors, did you have a philosophy that you wanted to impart to the players? I think, and... yeah, yeah, uh, yes, yes, it was. It's called win. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, and it's interesting you should say this like, because that is true. And and I'll and I'll give you an example. I've got two, I have two daughters now who are a bit older, but they uh, who never who were not born when I was playing, so ne- didn't know anything about uh, of me as a player, and. Um, but started to uh, uh, have an interest in me and and obviously Wickham being, um, uh, we moved down to Wickham, we moved down to Beaconsfield and bought a house here and our, our lives were revolved around Wickham Wonders. But, um, and I had two young daughters who would come to the football matches, but they realised very quickly that the, um, and um, the older one, they're both smart cookies, but um they uh, realised from a very early stage that Saturday evening uh, in um, is much easier for the whole household if Wickham could win um, <laughs> yeah. than it would be if they lost because their father wouldn't be in the best of moods. But if we won, we could go to some, some uh, two-bit Chinese restaurant in High Wickham and have a lovely meal. I mean, we, we might be sick afterwards. It doesn't really matter. But however, this would be Saturday night would be glorious if we could win. So this is true. Life. And my older daughter, uh, a couple of years older than her sister, uh, when I was leaving the house for any Wiccan game, used to race out the last moment. Always, and, and I know that she would have been doing this deliberately, leaving it to the last moment. Her last words to me, wind down the window. And I said, Cheryl, see you later on. They would be coming to the games, whether home or away, they would come to the matches. But she said, Dad, just win. Just win. And that meant everything. But you just win because that's she She would have an easier Saturday evening, you know, at home. So that was the philosophy. How you win, you just have to. And I, and I, and I, and you have to, seriously, you just have to win the games because, you know, uh, Everything else is easier to deal with if you can win. But do you have a philosophy of playing? Yeah, I need it in those days. That I suppose that four four two was the kind of way that most teams played. So what it meant is that you had to. Have, I wanted two wide men. Those two wide men to be able to beat players, to be able to, but also to be athletic enough that when we lose the ball, they would they would uh, be able to get back and tuck in. And I had two wingers at at at, at Wickham. One called Dave Carroll, who had definitely Premier League ability, and the other one, Steve Guppy, who ended up playing, playing one game for England, believe it or not. And I, I signed him at Leicester City, and he was exceptionally good. So he could cross a brilliant ball, but he also could get back for you. And he wasn't the best tackler, but at least he made another number. So and and then if you've two athletic players playing in the middle of the field, you needed some running energy, and obviously I needed a centre forward to score a goal. So my philosophy wouldn't have been. It um, it wouldn't have been uh, it wouldn't have been that much different from 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 anybody else. But what I did like about it is I liked I liked I liked the defenders to be able to defend properly. 
uh, to, um, fullbacks being able to stop the cross. If they can get forward and do overlaps, that's great. But their first job was to defend and the centre-backs to be able to deal with anything that came into the into the penalty area in, in the air. But essentially, after that there, I needed athleticism in front of them, particularly the two centre-midfield players who could get up and down, and the two wide players. And if I had a clever centre-forward and somebody with a bit of a bit of strength about him alongside him, that I could I I could um I could, you know, we could get goals from from those positions. And that's essentially the way it was. Then I go to I went to Leicester, and when I signed at Leicester, first of all, Leicester had about 27 centre backs in their books. Of one only one of them was any I think only one of them was any good at the time. So uh, but it forced you into playing three at the back. Primarily play at three at the back because we couldn't deal with two at the back, and then I played two wide players, and then suddenly we were getting a bit of um, we're getting a bit of joy from the three-five-two situation. You know, the problem was, and it's very obvious. Problem is that that um, if you are a centre back, the last thing you want is the ball is played played over the top of one of your wing backs. Then it means you're going into an uncomfortable position to retrieve the ball. And the, and you feel a bit isolated. So it was getting your two, your two, not your middle centre back, but the two either side of him. It was them them to be brave enough to go out and confront the danger out there where they felt a wee bit more exposed. But once you could overcome that in their minds, then then the three five two will work for you, or it worked with the with the players that you had. But essentially, it was those things. Then I got I went to Celtic, continued with the three at the back. Then we played, we played a European game once where we, we were well beaten in a match. Um, it wasn't Josie Mourinho's Porto, but it was Porto in a in a Champions League game, and where their system their system beat us. And so I learned a great deal from that. So eventually, we go back into playing a back four, and uh, and the back four stood us in really good stead then from there. So it just you know. It's, things develop along the way mm. that they, they just they just do because that's the nature of the game. And I it would be interesting to know whether Guardiola or Klopp had a had a philosophy had a philosophy to start with, and this is what they wanted to do. I thought it was easier for Guardiola because he did actually have Iniesta, Xavi, and, and yeah. uh, Messi. And I think you can I think you can develop. Any sort of um, philosophy that you want after that, there you've got those players dealing with it. Excuse me, to I kick this dog. Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> I shall not kick the dog. I apologize. I was certainly not doing particularly. I'd have to maybe think about. I'm burying the dog tomorrow, so that's no problem. <laughs> okay, so uh, okay, so this that's that's your uh, you know the type of philosophy is mm. just uh, it is interesting, but. Um, I once spoke to Clive Woodward once. He said that uh, it was it was uh, it was amazing how good a coach he was considered when he had all his best players available to him. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it does help. It does yeah. help. Uh, honestly, it does. You know, when you've got quality players who can deal with the ball. I guess. I mean, I guess you have to be open to change and open to of course, ideas and I think absolutely that's uh, you have to be you have to have you know well you know just to and and i think it's i think it's a, a nice education they have you know to 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 find out uh you know it's interesting just watching manchester city play i think they're a really top quality side where where you really 
you think that that uh, that they have brilliant ball players in their side, but what they do is that they get they get situations where where they they try and develop as many three v twos as they possibly can or two v ones, and um, particularly from areas just uh, just um, just outside the penalty area. Whereas they, and then eventually, if someone has beaten the offside trap by the, by the little one too, then suddenly you don't need a massive centre forward to head the ball into the net. These balls are being whizzed across the penalty area, and people can can put the ball in the net. So it, it's you know it's it's easier said than done, obviously, but um, but that's what they try and do. They just they, these create these overloads, and uh, and and it's working brilliantly for them. Yeah, well, they're, annoying, they're annoyingly well, successful. Well, it has done. Yeah, it has before this season. Yeah. Um, you're, I mean, you're you're so successful in in the nineties. We'll we'll gloss over uh, Leicester's playoff mm. win against Palace when Steve Claridge shinned the ball in from yeah. thirty five yeah. yards, um, which I did walk well, away from Wembley crying as a twelve. Did you? Did you? You were at the game then, were you? Honestly, yeah. oh, brilliant! Yeah. Really? Yeah, it was a a great moment for us because um, I I don't know. It's interesting. You talk about sliding doors moments. I thought that after you scored first in the game, I thought we played brilliantly and we just couldn't get the goal. Then we get the penalty and um, Muzzy Izzet's brought down and Gary Parker scores and then we get the goal in the last minute when I'm making the change for the goalkeeper. Yeah. You know, uh, you have big... Kalic. 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 Kalic was six foot seven. Wow. And <laughs> six foot seven. And at that time, wasn't the best of goalkeepers, you know. But the only thing about penalty shootouts is all he has to do is get a hand on one. And our other goalkeeper we had um, was a very athletic little goalkeeper, but he was quite small. And uh, so I made the change with about a minute to go. But I remember Kalex had a lot of confidence considering his goalkeeping wasn't great at the time. And uh, he said, "You don't you worry, Gaffer, I'll win this for you. And I thought, well, that's the... So he goes down into goal, then Clarice shins the ball into the net. I am ecstatic because at least Kalich doesn't have to face a penalty shoot. Although he was a big lad, Jim, honestly, and I think that he would have I certainly, and it was disconcerting for the Crystal Palace players because they weren't sure exactly what was happening. A goalkeeper was changing. Yeah, I think it, I think it did. Uh, it did confuse them for a little second or two, but uh, but Kalich at least then was six foot seven, and suddenly I felt that psychologically that the Crystal Palace players having faced a smaller goalkeeper for 120 minutes and then suddenly this big giant goes into goal, might, he might have been, listen, the Crystal Palace might have scored every single penalty, but it was a thought in my head. Anyway, the time. <laughs> but you've got yeah, to have well, those sort yeah. of fine margins, haven't you, in these, these big crucial moments. Absolutely right. But you got promotion the next year. But yeah. I was going to say, we came back a year later. Yeah, yeah. David, David Hopkins scores an absolute worldie. And, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So you only had to wait. Uh, you only had to wait forty-two more games. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or 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 forty-six as they were, perhaps in those. I don't yeah. know. And what's life? You know, what's the high moments without the low moments? And I think as fans, certainly of teams like Palace and Leicester and teams that maybe aren't you know top six, you have more low moments than high moments. So actually, well, going through those makes the high moments even more enjoyable. Absolutely. There's no question about that, you know. And uh, but sure, I mean, I think I think that's in life. I think that would apply to to most players. I mean, I I, I as I said to you, I was really lucky, very very fortunate to play with some really good players and play with a terrific manager. And would those things have been possible? You know, if other things had developed, if Brian Clough had never arrived at uh, at uh, at Nottingham Forest. So 
So the highs are fantastic. To to hold that European cup aloft in, in 1980 is just, just a moment to treasure, an unforgettable moment. But what there are lots of lows, lots of lows, you know, lows in, in, in games, lows as a manager, lows as a player. And um, and so do the big, big moments, if they are very big moments, do they compensate? I would have to say yes, they, they do, because that's that's what you're in the game to do, to win medals. Well, Talk, I think that you're in the game. Yeah. Talking about those low We're moments. We're not as Palace fans. I don't no, think, no, no. <laughs> Talking about those low moments, would you say um, managing the the low moments is, is is more severe than the playing side of the low moments. Do you? Did you oh, think? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I, I think so. Although I think that uh, just um, and hopefully this isn't a contradiction. I think that playing playing is what the game's all about. It's what about? It's what you you go. I didn't when I was nine, ten, or eleven talking about Real Madrid. I didn't think. I wonder who the manager of Real Madrid is. You know, I wasn't. And as an eleven year old, you're not thinking. I want to grow up to be a manager. I couldn't care less. I want to be a player. So the game's about players, no doubt. But in terms of absolutely, as the man, you you can a player. I I think you I think it feel as if you're if you're one of eleven and you've lost the game. At least you can share something. As a manager, you don't seem to be able to share these things. You're certainly not sharing with players that you feel as if you just you know they've just blown it. And secondly, you're 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 going to have to. You're not really sharing it with supporters. You're demanding a lot more. So absolutely. So low moments. So no wonder my daughter said to me, "Dad, just win." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let let let's be fair about it. You know. So sorry. Is it um is it quite a lonely existence being a manager? Uh, I think that you need uh the the short answer to that, Jim, is probably yes. Yes, it it it, it absolutely is. It's it's um, because those those uh, no. Um, for instance, the moments after you lose a game, um, you're sharing them with your coach. You're sharing them with you know the, the your your backroom staff for a moment or two. But then when they all go home and you're left there, you know, and you're starting to think about it, yeah, it can, it can, it can be tough because eventually they've just gone home. They are part of your squad. That's absolutely right, and they're depending on us winning football matches. They're depending on you winning football games. But you, you know that you'll have to accept the consequences, and you're the one that will take the flak at the next press conference. Yeah, does that explain it? Yeah. So my follow-up question is: Do you need to have good people around you? Then I guess as managers, you have people you trust inherently. Absolutely. Next to you. I had that when John Robertson and Steve Walford. Steve Walford was an exceptionally brilliant coach, really, a really, really good coach. Um, uh, and uh, and John Robertson was a brilliant assistant manager for all the things I wanted to do. And I had a goalkeeping coach, Seamus McDonough. I know he didn't come to Celtic with us because uh, there was a goalkeeping coach in place at the time on a long contract. But overall, those people, they were absolutely essential to me. You knew that they would not be that you know anything that was in the within their uh, private room that wouldn't this wouldn't find itself somewhere else but more importantly that they would not be saying to a player well you know what honestly i i would have picked you in the teams and you know but the manager that i can implicit trust with these people and even in a moment of uh, an unguarded moment, let's say in a restaurant or somebody gets here i know that they still would not 
come up and um, uh, and uh, and make a, a, a derogatory comment about what you had done in any way. It not, didn't even have to be derogatory, just something that they, they might have disagreed with or something, I guess, here. I knew that that was strong. But as importantly that there, I knew that they were really good at their jobs as well too. So all of that, and um, particularly John and Steve had a really good rapport with the players. I kind of stayed away from it. I used to say to John and Steve, don't tell me unless there's some really... Some some of the players have been really out of hand. I don't really want to know. So the players started to re- get a lot of trust in them, and I kind of stayed a wee bit more aloof from that, and and so it worked really well. So the likes, uh, you know, the likes of Chris Sutton and Henrik Larsson, uh, still think so fondly of uh, of Steve Walford and John Robertson. It's 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 really kind of kind of unreal. I kind of get a bit jealous of that, you know. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting that you would, yeah, be a little bit kind of standoffish from the players. I have yeah. absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, so I, I don't mind that. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that because I do You know, I, 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 I sounds again uh, as if it's a contradiction. I did get close to the players, but not, not, not too, not too close, not too close that I can't tell them, you know, about uh, what is happening here. You know, I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be their, their, their buddies either. You know. That's not my job. My job is to try and improve them if I can for them to win football matches for me selfishly, you know. Mm. And Henrik Larson won a couple of matches for me, you know. Yeah, like, he did all right. Yeah, he like, did all right, didn't he? <laughs> what a player he was. About, about 14,000, to tell you the truth, but don't tell him. <laughs> yeah. But I guess also it makes it easier when you're dropping people. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely right. I didn't mind dropping the players I didn't like either, you know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I apologize. Like, sorry. Like, I I no. think there's a uh, I think there's a good metaphor for life though in general, isn't there, about having good people around you? And uh I think if you surround yourself with right yeah, people. I, I do honestly. Yeah, you know that they will they will not let you absolutely right, okay? No doubt. No doubt at all. My wife is nice to trying to send me messages my food is ready but there you know. <laughs> Well, uh, we can we can wrap up soon. Sorry, we no, we but honestly, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it, lads. It's been really brilliant. If you f- fancy doing it again after, well, I was nearly going to say after Crystal Palace won a game, but that could be. That could be, <laughs> <laughs> that could be <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that could be that could be uh, a use time. I must admit, honestly, I remember. So but, uh, before we go, because obviously you've got this yeah. new book out um, on days like these. Has it been, uh, and I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, but has it been a, an enjoyable process writing the book? Has it been cathartic for you? I'm obviously you've been able to open up about various different things that have maybe been on your mind for a while. Has it been a, an enjoyable process getting this stuff down on paper and releasing it out into the world? Uh, the, the 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 answer is yes. Um, yeah, I just, I, you know, I suppose maybe I, sh- I should have done this probably in lockdown, uh, but it... Um, uh, it just it it came to me. the The interesting thing about it is that um, one, I wanted to do it myself. Two, I felt uh, fifty years having straddled the game. You know, come in, come into football uh, in nineteen seventy one. That seems a long time away. It was only about six years after England had won the World Cup in sixty six. So there I am as a young lad watching um, watching England and Germany in the in the final, and then suddenly within six years. I am actually I'm I'm 14 in 1966, and then in 1972, by I have played a game at Upton Park against Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, and Martin Peters, wow. and I've already played against George Best. So those th- those things are like like really incredible. 
if I tell you lads, I absolutely adored playing in the 70s, you know, um, I thought there was nothing like it really, you know, it was my life and I'm I'm a professional player. I'm being paid for doing something I love doing. So all those lows, and there were loads of them during that time, you know what I felt as if to say, I honestly think that I not, Jim, you'd mentioned something about being uh, uh, a, a bit overconfident. I felt as if I could overcome them, although not, not every single day, but mo mostly I felt as if I could overcome them and really be a proper professional player. So suddenly now, and then for my career to straddle 50 years, you know, and to see the change that have taken place in the game, the better pitches, how could George Best have played now, you know, when pitches and players being kicked less. You might think there's a lot of kicking, but honestly, if you want to play, um, you want to play a game against Ron Harris, then you know all about it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and you want to play against Johnny Giles and Billy Bremner and mm. Jack Charles and those lads, you know, who would kick you up and down the pitch and think nothing more of it. Norman Hunter, who would... Uh, you know, great players, great players. Norman Hunter was a fantastic footballer, believe it or not. But, you know, they were all nasty. But this was the game. And therefore, me to see all the change that have taken place, the, you know, the money that's come into the game, the back pass rule, VAR, everything. That's, so I that's when I just thought I maybe I'd do it. But the interesting thing about it, my, my starting point, um, and I wrote all of this in longhand because I go back uh, thinking that if I stick it in paper, I, as I'm writing, I will think of, I, I will have a thought or two in my head that might not have been the thought if I'd been talking to a machine or something. And um, and so I felt that all of those things that uh, that were important. But here's the thing. Of the two days, I I don't know. I cannot remember that's what happened. This uh, what, what day are we? Thursday? To me, what did you do on Tuesday? I wouldn't have an idea. But what I do know, is the two days that stick out for me and it's where I kind of started. My very first day in England as a professional player, I will not, couldn't forget, couldn't forget now, leaving Belfast on a plane, you know, leaving trouble-torn Belfast to become a professional player. In the, and Clough's first day at, at, the, uh, at the city ground. Those days are, are etched forever. And even if I get Alzheimer's, I'll remember, you know, honestly, I remember those days. So I, those are my starting points for, to start to do the thing and everything else would kind of follow up. And um, and my recollection of certain events is actually actually quite, quite good. Now, my recollection might not be the same. Tony Woodcock might turn around and tell me, oh, by the way, those days in Bisham Abbey, you've got that wrong, Martin. <laughs> but these are my recollections, and I, yeah. and I know that I'm quite right. And for instance, sorry, and I will bore you for the last time. I know this, that when we got promotion, we being Nottingham Forest got promotion under Brian Clough and Peter Taylor into the big league. We, our last game was a week before this, uh, 10 days before the season had finished. So we got in. It's amazing because the season had not finished. We won at Millwall, but we're still needing Bolton Wanderers, who I think are probably the best side in the league, believe it or not. We need Wolves, who are already up, to 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 win at Bolton, to win at Bolton for us to... And we're in an aeroplane, and an aeroplane going to Mallorca with Clough, and, uh, Clough taking us to me. And I never forget this, that. Um, that over 20 minutes, we're, it's 20, we, we're, we're in the flight when the game, the boat and game's on. And the pilot has announced over the, over the tunnel and the thing, he said, for anybody interested in football, he said, uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers are leading 1-0. 
and and we did not know the end result. He never came back again. He never <laughs> came back to tell us until we got off the flight and Brian Clough and the chairman of the football club, a fellow called Stuart Dryden, racing and all us behind them, like 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 the, the like the Pied Piper and us running out to, to get to a phone for him to Stuart Dryden to phone home to find out. And he picks the phone up and sort of a smile comes over his face and he says to Brian Clough, he said, I think congratulations are in order. That is as clear to me as deadline. deadline. The number, the number, Tony Woodcock, Viv Anderson, John, not John Robertson, but Tony Woodcock, Viv Anderson, remember different stories. And it's not true, lads. I swear <laughs> to you. We did not know. We did not know the score, the end score on the flight. We knew we were 1-0. We had to wait until Clough and Taylor went into a, into the was it Mallorca, Palma Airport, or whatever the case may be. And, get, and we're talking about, you know, way back in 1977. So these are the things. So these are so these are my recollections of it. And I'm going a long-winded way to tell you that these are these are my thoughts. Cathartic in in some aspects, yes, but perhaps, but it was really just a it was um some of it is a bit of fun. Some of it was, uh, some of it was just a uh, just a change of mood. You know, where where you're down and out, and your your you know your 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 life is uh, in front of you. There, what what are you going to do when you have when you have no money, and um, and you have a wife and two children to support? You know, these things. Anyway, listen honestly. That delighted that you two have not even bothered even to read it. So there you go. <laughs> but anyway. The, uh, the word soporific comes into being, but if you two actually even attempt to call me again and say that that was soporific, I will never, ever speak to you. I'll never speak to you. Martin, you said a few times that I'm going to bore you. You could not bore me. I, I could talk to you about football literally for days. It's been such a joy yes. having you on the podcast. Oh, I appreciate it. Honestly, lads, you've been very, very good. And thank you for... Um, for uh, seriously bearing up with me, I I, I get into these things, but they're a, a, a bit of crack. Anyway, cherry all you two. Uh, oh, Martin, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Martin O'Neill on the Blank Podcast. What a guy. Thought he'd be fun, but it was absolutely brilliant. And uh, I think the guest signing off by saying goodbye, you, you reprobates, what you said <laughs> off air after recording, it should happen every episode. Yeah. Um, top bloke. I mean, you know, his rec track record speaks for itself in the world of football. Um, and, Incredible. Uh, do get a copy of his book uh, on days like these, because uh, I'm sure what you just listened to is only a snippet of what is available in that book. When you think about the teams he's managed, the times he's seen, uh, the stories he can tell, uh, do check it out. We've got extra content. Another extra story on this episode from Martin that we save just for our patrons. And we give them a little bit of extra content every week at patron.com slash blank podcast. So do listen for that. It's a very good story indeed. Um, and that's it. Thank you so much uh, to Martin for coming in. I mean, Giles, what a, what, what a legend. Oh, absolute legend, and, and and obviously, like you know, we went back to the early days of his, like his falling in love with football in the first place, and um, watching um, Real Madrid, wasn't it, that he had a big uh, yeah. love for, and then yeah, just going through the whole kind of 
the whole life of his football career really from from playing days to managing um, all the highs and lows yeah it was really fascinating hopefully it's a little sort of snippet into what his book's like and uh, we got we managed to get a few of those little anecdotes in there as well which was great well, well there's a link now in the show notes below your podcast uh, or whatever app you're listening to so do uh, follow that link to buy a copy um, of the book and uh, that's it for this week I think Gels uh, I'm still frozen Are you? I haven't warmed up at all I'm still frozen cold but uh, at least we got to listen to some great stories from Marta. They warmed me up. They, those stories yeah, they, warmed they were, my heart. They were very warming. my legs were still frozen. <laughs> they were very warming. Warming warming the cockles of our our hearts. Beautifully done. Uh, so I guess it just you know leaves us to say goodbye to our listeners. Have a good week. You too, Giles. Have a good week. Have a good week, Jim. Thanks, mate. And uh, remember, mm. don't get cancelled. Ah, <laughs> oh, wrong music. Ha, ha, ha. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.